We're going to be in John chapter 4 today, if you have a Bible and you want to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's either one in the, under the chair where you're sitting or in front of you, or you can just follow along on the screen. <clears throat> Many of you were here last week, and I had a part of the sermon that was particularly emotional. I didn't know if I'd make it through, and so kind of in the middle of it, I gave Tabine permission to, to slap me if I started crying. And it worked, because I didn't cry. But I, I was a little bit alarmed after the service when he asked me if that permission was for any time or just for that Sunday. And I thought, I got to be careful what I say during a sermon because, you know, some people listen really intently. So. Well, we've been looking at three different things in our study of John, three big picture themes, lengthy personal conversations that Jesus had with people. There's seven of them in John. There's a lot of sevens in John. There are seven I am statements that Jesus makes that reveal uh, great truths about his identity and his mission. There's also seven women who met Jesus and the powerful encounters that they had. Today we're looking at a passage that really is none of those things, and so the question might, might be, why look at it? Well, another thing that we've been tackling is that in John's Gospels, apart from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus does a miracle, John doesn't call it a miracle. He calls it a sign. And as we've said, it's because John is more interested in what that sign is telling us and revealing to us than he is in the power of what Jesus is doing and performing. And so uh, we're going to begin today in John chapter 4, verse 43. And the, our immediate passage speaks of the second sign that Jesus performs. And I really believe that the teaching... Uh, that follows, the words of Jesus that follow, are his teaching on what that sign means. And I would challenge you that I believe it's probably the longest teaching of Jesus in the New Testament, apart from the Sermon on the Mount, in which he talks about his relationship with God, his ability to give life, the fact that he has authority to judge the world, and the many witnesses who confirm that his testimony is true and who reveal what his true identity is. So I've entitled today's sermon so much more because at the end of the day, what I want you to see is that Jesus is presenting himself as so much more than any of the patriarchs. And continually the Jews are saying, well, you're not greater than Jacob. You're not greater than Moses. You're not greater than Abraham. And Jesus is like, yeah, I created those guys, yeah, and, and I am eternal, and there's a lot of levels on which I'm greater than them. But he's also letting us know that uh, the law, the rituals, the customs, all of the things that the Jewish people were immersed in were a means to an end, but he is that end. And so he is so much more than uh, their perception of him and their expectations of him. We're going to find that out today. Let's begin John chapter 4 verse 43. It says, at the end of the two days, Jesus went on to Galilee. Jesus, if you remember in the last passage with the woman at the well, he had told this woman everything that she had ever done. She went back to the village of Sychar and said, come meet a guy who told me everything that I've ever did, everything I've ever said. Could this be the Messiah? They come and um, they're enthralled with Jesus' teaching. 
And Jesus tells them, I'm going to stay with you guys two days. The disciples had saw Samaria as a place to avoid because it was Gentile people and Jews didn't like to associate with Gentiles. So it was, a, it was an unfortunate stop along the way for them. But Jesus said, no, there's a harvest here. He stayed for two days. And that's what our text is saying. At the end of those two days, he went on to Galilee. Verse 44, and he himself said that a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. And yet he's going back to Galilee. And so why? Well, the point here is that Jesus is going to a place where he lacks honor in order that those who are not showing him the honor and acknowledgement of who he truly is can learn who he is and believe in him. Yet the Galileans welcomed him for he had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything. They had seen everything that he did there. Back in chapter 2, you can look later, but something we haven't covered yet, which you may be like, what did he do in Jerusalem that they saw? Back in chapter 2, he had cleansed the temple. He made a, a whip, and he went in and he drove out the money changers. And he did that, if you're unfamiliar, because the money changers were not just selling sacrifices for people to offer, but they had driven up the price exorbitantly, and they were manipulating the people and, and taking advantage of them. And Jesus says, this is a house of prayer, a place of worship. How dare you turn it into a place of commercialism? So he drove them out. And there's a little detail that Matthew includes in his gospel that you have to hold on to. And the study guide that I provided this week for individual study and small groups is going to direct you to that. But Matthew chapter 21 tells us that after he cleansed the temple, the, the deaf and the lame and the blind came into the temple, and he healed them. Now, what's happening there, it's just a small little verse, small little blur, but it's profound because these are people that were never allowed in the temple because they were seen as incomplete and not whole, as unclean. And so now they're finally able to go, and they would go to the temple for one to say, you know, now that I'm healed, uh, I'm presenting myself to the priest so I can be back and part of society again. But they were also going to give thanks to God. And so all of the people who were outcasts and were alienated from fellowship with God and access to God were able to go to the temple immediately after he cleansed it. And um, that's part of the reason why all these Galileans were excited to follow up with him and learn more about him. <clears throat> Jesus entered the temple Matthew 21 says this, he entered the temple and drove out all of those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And then verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. We're going to tie that in in a little bit and you're going to see the beauty of, of why that's so significant. But for now, verse 46 as Jesus traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a government official in nearby Capernaum, whose son was very ill. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son, <clears throat> who was about to die. And you have to realize, this is... It's hard to imagine a more improbable scene than this, that a high-ranking official um, would go 20 miles one way to visit a village carpenter, because that's 
the power that he believed Jesus had to heal and to fix his son and bring his son back into wellness again. But this guy is going to ask a favor of Jesus. He's swallowing his pride. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. He, he believes in his heart that Jesus is able to heal his son. And so he goes. And I, I think the message for us before we move on here is just to realize there are times that we need to realize that only God can give us what we truly need. And whatever keeps us from going to him in humility and acknowledging our need before him and his sufficiency, we just need to do it. It's, it's time to stop playing games, and this guy realizes that. Jesus says in verse 48 to him, Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? And we read that, and we're like, that's kind of harsh. This guy's come 20 miles to see you, and you're rebuking him. But you need to understand in the original language in the Greek, you is in the plural. So what's happening here is that Jesus is not just addressing him. He's addressing the crowds of people behind him. And basically what he's telling them, as he does so often, is you guys are here to see the signs and wonders and the miracles, but don't get so caught up in that that you miss the truth of who I am. Because I came for a lot more than just healing you and bringing you physical uh, wellness. I came for your, your spiritual salvation as well. That's what's really being communicated here. Verse 49, the official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. We find out now it's not just his son, but the boy is young. Then Jesus told him, go back home, your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. Like so often, um, we see in Scripture, somebody doesn't understand how it's going to happen, but without questioning, he believes, and he starts out. And look what happens in the process of obedience. As he starts home, verse 51, while the man was on his way, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. And he asked them when the boy had begun to get better, and they replied, yesterday evening at 7 p.m. His fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realized that was the very time that Jesus had told him, your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. And this was the second miraculous sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. The first one being the turning of water to wine at Cana. So he's doing the second sign in Cana as well. Some of your Bibles may have said uh, 1 o'clock, 1 p.m. in the afternoon because they're going by the Jewish time starting at 6 a.m. in the morning. But we were arguing in the woman at the well that John is doing his chronology according to the Roman time, which starts at noon, so it would have been 7 p.m. And it makes sense that if the servants had left the day before, um, that it happened in the early evening, they went through the night, and now they're getting to Jesus on the next day. Just makes a lot more sense. I want you to pause here for a moment to remind you all that the gospel writers wrote to different audiences, and that's one of the reasons why we see some of the differences in the Gospels. Matthew wrote to the Jews, and that's why he quotes the Old Testament more than any other Gospel, because he wants to show them how Jesus fulfills the prophecies that were spoken about the Messiah. Mark wrote to the Romans, Luke wrote to the Greeks, and John wrote to the whole world. And in light of that, it's interesting to note that John is showing us that first Jesus brought the Gospel to Nicodemus a high-ranking, respected Jewish teacher in John chapter 3. Last week, we saw 
uh, Jesus bringing the gospel to the Samaritan woman, the Gentile woman who was considered unclean and, and less than in, in so many ways. And today we're seeing him interact with a, an official working in the Roman government. All of this is evidence that the gospel is for everyone, whether you're Jew, Greek, Gentile, you know, every uh, ethnicity is encompassed under the gospel. Chapter 5. After Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days, inside the city near the Sheep Gate was a pool of Bethesda with five covered porches and crowds of sick people, blind and lame or paralyzed, lay on the porches. Now just after this is verse 4, which in some of your Bibles isn't included because it really records a myth or a legend rather than uh, historical truth. They were waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the waters. Whoever then first, after stirring up the waters, stepped into, uh, was made well of whatever disease with which they were afflicted. Now, even though it's a legend and it's a myth, the man's response, as we're going to find out to Jesus in verse 7, kind of confirms the myth. He is operating under this perception and this knowledge, so we know that it was pretty much believed by everybody. And the truth is, is that the pool at Bethesda was probably fed by natural springs. So there were times that as the water gushed into this pool, they were thinking this is the movement of God, and this is the time where healing is going to take place. So there's a physical phenomenon that brought on this spiritual expectation. And perhaps once in a while, somebody claimed that they were healed, and that's how this whole thing perpetuated. But that, that's what's going on here. What, what you need to know if you visit Jerusalem today is at the very uh, northeastern gate of the city, that's the Sheep Gate. And in Jesus' day, it was only known as the Sheep Gate, and that's the gate through which they led lambs from Bethlehem for, for slaughter in the temple. And um, just after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, Stephen became the very first martyr. And his, historians tell us that he was martyred right outside of this gate, so it also became known as Stephen's Gate. And then in the early centuries, there was an Assyrian king who had a dream about lions, and so he had lions affixed and kind of plastered or cemented on, whatever they did back then, uh, to the outside of the wall. So it's, it's known as uh, the, the Sheep Gate, Stephen's Gate, and the, and the Lion's Gate, of which it's interesting that Jesus is all three. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who gave himself on our behalf um, for, for our salvation, uh, martyred, gave up his life, and he's also the Lion from the tribe of Judah. As you go right through this gate, even today, though, just to the right is St. Anne's Cathedral, and right across from St. Anne's Cathedral is the Pool of Bethesda, where all of these people hung out. And so what's happening is it's proximity to the temple that once this guy is healed, he's going to the temple, and once the temple is cleansed, all of those people that were able to or could be assisted, they, they all went to the temple because this is our chance to finally go in and have access to God because we're usually kept out. And that's the beauty of what Matthew was telling us before. Well, one of the things we've been saying in our study is, and Brittany pointed this out, is not only to ask, what am I reading? What, 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 what is the text telling me? But why 
are the authors of Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit placing it and recording it the way that they do? And one of the questions that comes up is, is why does John bother telling us that this porch, this roof area that faced the pool had five columns? Like, big deal. Like, you know, why is that significant? Well, it seems that John is telling us that it's symbolic, and I believe that it is. It's symbolic of a number of things. It's symbolic of the last chapter, the woman at the well having five husbands who failed her, who abandoned her. It's symbolic of the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the insufficiency of the Mosaic law to make us righteous before God. It was a standard that no one was able to attain to and live up to. And so it was given to reveal our inadequacy and drive us to Christ. But um, it shows the insufficiency. There's a symbolism going on here. And it all, I believe, goes back to John chapter 1, verse 17, where John said, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. So Jesus is issuing a new era. And it's not that he's abolishing the law, but he's showing, I am the fulfillment of the law. And whoever puts their faith in me will have righteousness before God. So the crowds of sick people in verse 3 that I said, they're all of these people that were hanging out by the pool who were finally able to go. And our text also tells us that Jesus knew this crippled man. Some of your translations said that he learned about him, but I believe he knew. And whether it was his omniscience where he knew about him, Or very likely, if the guy had been there for 38 years, Jesus had seen this guy his whole life. I mean, Jesus is in his early 30s when he begins his public ministry. This guy was a fixture there. Everybody knew this guy. He had been sitting by the pool all of these years waiting to be healed. Uh, A lot of historians say this guy had lived longer than the life expectancy of many people of his day, and all of this time waiting for healing. And Jesus asks him kind of a ridiculous question in verse 6. Do you wish to get well? You know, and the the answer would have been, well, of course. I've been sitting here for 38 years wishing to get well. And it's, in my mind, sort of a parallel question that Jesus had asked the woman at the well. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It's kind of on the same level to that. And just like the woman said, well, the well is deep and you don't seem to have anything to draw the water out with, this guy is responding, well, of course I'd like to get well, but every time I want to move toward the water, somebody gets there before me and I'm prevented from being healed. So there's kind of a parallelism going on here. One of the things that John, I believe, is telling us is just, remember the wedding at Cana, the water that turned into wine was used for ritual washing, right? As people came in, they washed in the water to be ceremonially clean. And Jesus had turned that water into wine. And and the symbolism of that was that, again, the Mosaic law and the customs, the rituals were inadequate. They were insufficient to achieve what God desired. And in the same way, the water of this five-porched pool 
represents that same inadequacy. As well as the five husbands that the woman had were insufficient and inadequate in terms of fulfilling this woman and taking care of her like Jesus, the true husband, had offered to her. At this point, I think it's really interesting to, to, to understand the meaning of Bethesda. That's another thing I challenge you to do, is whenever you're reading something and you see a, a Hebrew word like this or a word that doesn't make sense, look up the meaning, whether in a concordance or a Bible dictionary. And as many of you know, Bethesda means house of mercy, but it also means flowing waters. And so the symbolism that's happening here is powerful because I really believe what Jesus is saying to this man is, you're waiting for the waters to stir so that you might have healing. But you don't understand that if you begin a relationship with me, just as he said to the woman at the well, you will have an internal flowing stream of water that never ceases, that will bring continual wholeness and healing into your life. So you don't have to wait for the right opportunity. You just have to believe in me, and through me you will have living waters within you that bring healing and wholeness like you've never imagined. Verse 8, Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly the man was healed, and he rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But the miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well, so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. Again, kind of uh, uh, some troubling words here that are hard to understand. It seems that this man's illness was brought on by his sin. Now, we've said before that the Jews viewed all illness and all infirmities as sin-related. All suffering was based upon sin. And we're going to learn in, in John chapter 9, when we get to that story of the blind man, where they say, who sinned? This man or his parents said he was born this way, and Jesus says, neither but that the glory of God might be revealed in his life. Jesus makes it very clear that there's a lot of things that aren't sin-related, but they're simply to reveal God's glory. But it seems like this guy's particular sin was, uh, his infirmity was sin-related. And it's interesting that the text tells us that he had been there for 38 years. Because also in your study guide, if you choose to probe into the, this week, in the fifth book of the law, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 2, verse 14, it tells us that the number of the years that the Israelites wandered in the wilderness uh, experiencing the punishment of God was 38 years. So it's connecting this guy's kind of wandering and, and, and grasping for God for 38 years with that wilderness wandering, and they were being punished for their sin. It seems like he's being punished as well. But please understand this. Jesus is not threatening him. If you continue in sin, I'll, I'll I'll inflict you with something even worse. What Jesus is saying is, don't stop with the miracle. And don't feel like, well, I'm well now, so I've achieved the greatest thing I could achieve. Understand that physical wholeness is not the same as your eternal destiny and your salvation. And so please understand that the miracle points to me. And, and receive the life that I offer. Don't stop at the miracle. That's, 
eternal damnation would be something far worse that Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about uh, inflicting him with, with greater infirmities. Verse 16. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. And I just had to stop here in my study this week and thought, because that's the appropriate response, right? When someone's suffering for 38 years with a deformity and infirmity, we should get caught up in the rules, you know, rather than the healing that takes place. Like, well, this happened on the Sabbath, so that's clearly wrong. <laughs> they're, they're so messed up. Jesus replied, his reply is very interesting here. My father is always working, and so am I. Which reveals the fact that the Jewish rabbis believed that God continually upheld the universe without breaking the Sabbath. So they understood God is always working. He's, he's keeping the universe spinning. He's upholding life and the planets and everything. And so it's okay for God to work. Um, and Jesus is kind of saying, well, I'm God, so it's okay for me to work. There's another thing going on here, though, is that <clears throat> the Sabbath is based upon creation, right? God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested from his work. But we read that in human terms, like God was exhausted and he took a break. Not the point. When God rests from work, it communicates finished work. It also communicates the fact that when we rest, we're acknowledging that the world continues on without my efforts. There is one greater than me that upholds everything, and so I don't need to work constantly to provide and make things happen because there is one who provides for me. That's what we do. But another example is that when Jesus finished the work of salvation on the cross, Scripture says he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Why? Because he had completed the finished work. But all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit, sin entered the world. And ever since that time, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have been busy redeeming creation back into relationship with God. And so the Godhead never ceases to work. And Jesus is saying, my Father is always working, and I, I follow in his steps and work as well. Not only that, but these opponents of Jesus were clearly putting human tradition above love and compassion for others. And yet Jesus was following the Old Testament law, which said, love your neighbor as yourself. And so in actuality, Jesus was keeping the law. They were violating the law. That's the irony of their accusations. Verse 18, so the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. Now it's gone from just you're breaking rules to we're going to kill you because you're, you're bugging us. For he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also called God his Father, thereby making himself equal with God. I'm not going to dwell on that, but I just want to point out again that in our culture today, the cults come to our door and they say Jesus isn't God, he's the Son of God. And we should just say, yeah, you're right, but if you read your Bible in Jesus' day, being the Son of God was equality with God. It wasn't inferior. It's a role that he took on in his humanity. It doesn't speak of his deity or lack of divinity. And we misunderstand that today. Verse 19, so Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. 
Jesus is saying here that it's impossible for me to act in a way that is contrary to God the Father or that opposes God the Father because I, as God the Son, act in perfect congruence and harmony with Him. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him everything He's doing. In fact, the Father will show Him how to do even greater works than healing this man, and then you will truly be astonished. For just as the Father gives life to those He raises from the dead, so also the Son gives life to anyone He wants. In addition, the Father judges no one. Instead, He has given the Son absolute authority to judge so that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who doesn't honor the Son is certainly not honoring the Father who sent Him. And I tell you the truth, that those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they will have passed already from death into life. And I assure you that the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who listen will live. The Father has life in Himself, and He has granted that, son, that same life-giving power to His Son, and He has given that, Him authority to judge everyone because He is the Son of Man. Don't be so surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. Jesus is not just speaking of the last day when He returns, but if you read the Gospels carefully, we hear that when Jesus rises from the dead on Sunday morning, there were many former saints who had died that rose from their graves and wandered around the city, which is kind of comical because it wasn't as easy to find a resurrected man as we might think it was because there were hundreds of people walking around. It's like, are you the Christ? Nope, you're just my uncle that I haven't seen in a while, you know? It was, <laughs> it was pretty, pretty funny. Verse 28, don't be so surprised. Indeed, the time is coming for all the dead in their graves will hear the, the voice of the Son of God, and they will rise again. Those who have done good will rise and experience eternal life, and those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. Verse 31, if I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid, but someone else is also testifying about me, and I assure that everything he says about me is true. In fact, you send investigators to listen to John the Baptist, and his testimony about me was true. Of course, I have no need of any human witnesses, but I say these things so that you might be saved." John was like a burning and shining lamp, and you were excited for a while about his message. But I have a greater witness than John, my teachings and my miracles. The Father gave me these works to accomplish, and they prove that he sent me. Verse 37, And the Father who sent me has testified about me himself. You have never heard his voice or seen his face, but you do have his message uh, and you do not have his message in your hearts because you do not believe in me, the one he sent to you. The people don't realize in rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting the very God that they claim to worship. Then this beautiful verse in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me, and yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Friends, that, that's the, one of the saddest 
parts of Scripture to me that we can be going through the motions of religion, religiosity, and miss the, the whole point of it all. That we could come to church Sunday after Sunday and sing songs and study Scripture for a while and then leave here and not get the point of it all, which is a relationship with God through Christ. That we can study His Word and be filled with knowledge and know a lot of great stuff and impress people with that knowledge, but that knowledge, as Brittany said, doesn't lead to living it out in our life and to drawing closer to the one that we claim to, to serve. Studying the sacred text was a central part of ancient Judaism. Jewish scribes meticulously copied the biblical text and developed detailed interpretations. But the study of Scripture in and of itself, as you and I well know, does not impart life. It's a life-changing relationship with the Word of God, who is a person, Jesus. Because of this, Bible study should result in genuine faith in Christ, in obedience and a transformed life, not simply acquiring knowledge. Even the demons, James says, believe in God. They know everything there is to know about Him, but that belief in God does not lead to saving faith because they have not appropriated it for themselves. But they, they're full of knowledge. Verse 41, Your approval means nothing to me because I know that you don't have God's love within you. For I have come to you in my Father's name, and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. No wonder you can't believe, for you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the very one who alone is God. Yet it isn't I who accuse you before the Father. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses, the one in whom you have put your hopes. If you really believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? few quick things and we're going to wrap this up. But this teaching that Jesus has introduced in this passage, out of all of the New Testament, it tells us more about his relationship with his, with his father, the position that he has of judge of all things, and to the many witnesses that prove that he's the Messiah. And there's, there's three claims to deity here that I don't want you to miss. They're in verse 21, 22, and 23. He kind of gives them in rapid fire. It's easy to miss it. First of all, his first claim to deity is that he does what only God can do. We've talked about that in length before. But the Old Testament makes it clear that raising the dead and giving life to people was the sole prerogative of, of God. And Jesus does that. So he is God. Secondly, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. That's another activity that God alone, God alone judges people. The fact that Jesus judges, again, means that He is God. And then finally, verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Nowhere in Scripture does God tolerate worship of anyone other than Himself. That's why I've said, turn to Hebrews chapter 1 with the cults and ask them, how is this possible that God commands the angels of heaven to worship the Son? And, and when the whole heavenly host is singing, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain, where's God the Father in that picture if Jesus and God are not one? How is God sitting back and allowing all of the heavenly hosts to worship the Son if Jesus is only the Son of God, only a prophet, only a good teacher? Three proofs of Jesus' deity. In this last section of the passage here, particularly from verse 31 to 47, there's a real interesting thing here I want to just make you aware of as we land this plane. John is developing a witness theme, a witness motif throughout his gospel. 
really a trial motif. And the irony is this, as much as the world thinks that they are putting Jesus on trial, Jesus is putting the world on trial because of their lack of belief in him. And he's calling all of these many witnesses to attest to the truth of who he is. Verses 33 to 35, the first witness is John the Baptist. In verse 36, the second witness is the signs and the miracles that Jesus is performing. Verses 37 and 38, the the witness is God the Father himself. And then in verses 39 and following, it's all of the scriptures which testify to the truth of who Jesus is. So as we've said in the ancient world, every truth and fact is confirmed in the presence of two or three witnesses. Jesus is saying, it's not my own testimony. I'm not tooting my own horn. There is all of this multitude of witnesses that proclaim that I am in fact the Messiah, that I am God in human flesh. And so you either believe that and accept that or you don't. That's the power of what he's saying here. All four testify to God sending Jesus to bring eternal life to those who would believe. Some quick points of application as we, as we leave our passage today. We saw in John chapter 1, what was the testimony of John? What was the witness of John? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like this is the guy, this is the guy I've been talking about. Follow him, not me. We saw in John chapter 2 that Jesus is the Passover sacrifice who has replaced the Jewish water of purification with the fine wine of his own blood, his own blood that would be sacrificed to atone for our sins. We saw in chapter 3 that, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit so loved the world that Jesus gave himself in our place that we might receive forgiveness from our sins. And as Jesus said to the woman at the well in the last chapter, chapter 4, Jesus is the gift of God given to the world, the fountain of living waters for anyone who would drink of the salvation that he gives. And then today, we see that he is inviting us to come into relationship with him that we might experience life to the fullest, that we might experience eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, as we move into a time of communion, we thank you that you have made a way back into relationship with you, and that way is not through keeping the works of the law, which none of us is able to do perfectly, but that way is through your Son, who lived a perfect life and gave himself in our place for our salvation as a ransom. We thank you, Jesus, that that you loved us so much that you took our place that you bore the shame and the punishment and the agony of the cross, that you took on our sin, past, present, and future, that we might have eternal life, that we might be brought back into proper relationship with you, our Creator. And as we celebrate communion today, we remember what you did on our behalf. And as Paul says, we also proclaim to the world that there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what we acknowledge today. The Bible says that communion is for believers only because to partake of this not acknowledging the truth of what it communicates would be blasphemy. But Scripture also says that in the quietness of your heart, even now you can accept that gift of salvation that God offers through Jesus that you can acknowledge that each one of us is a sinner in need of a Savior. 
and that only Jesus' blood, the blood of the cross, pays for that sin. And accepting that new life, all of us can participate this morning if we acknowledge and believe that. And so, Father, would you meet with us during this time? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.